Hi, everybody. Welcome to PodRocket. I'm Brendan. I'm on the engineering team here at LogRocket. And joining us as our guest is Dave Howenstein. Hey, Dave. Hey, what's up? Dave is the vice president of engineering at Particle Health New York. uh, And previously, he was at Better Mortgage, where he scaled the engineering team from five to 120. Um, And before that, Dave, you and I worked together for for many, many years. So really excited to, to have you on the podcast and talk about um, some of the different things around you know, building APIs, scaling engineering organizations, um, a lot of the stuff that I think we've talked about a lot and, and realized would be great to, to sort of bring to the LogRocket podcast. Yeah, awesome. Uh, I'm glad to be here. And those are all things that I love talking about. <laughs> Awesome. So before we we dive in, do you want to give a quick overview of what you're doing at, at Particle Health? I know you started there in January. So tell us a little bit about the company, about your role and, and sort of where you guys are going. Yeah, for sure. So like you mentioned, I'm VP of engineering at Particle. Um, I think this is my seventh week now. So uh, I'm still relatively new there. Uh, Particle Health is a very, very cool company. Uh, the way that I think we describe it pretty often is we're the Plaid for healthcare, basically. So in the same way that Plaid provides a developer-friendly contract on top of fragmented financial data, Particle Health does the same for patient medical records. So there's this really complex and fragmented network where uh, patient records come from. And there's all this legislation that's changing year over year that makes this data more available. So someone has to act as the orchestrator on top of that. And that's what Particle Health does. We have a simple API on top of these complex networks. And we're able to connect uh, over 300 million patient records. And our customers make requests to our API. We return that data in a format called Fire R4, which is a relatively new and modern JSON format for uh, describing patient medical records. You give us basic demographic data, name, date of birth, address, et cetera, and we do the lookup. And the founders have uh, an incredible clarity of vision and strength in their conviction for how to solve these problems. And it's just such a cool and fun opportunity. I feel very privileged. Uh, The folks on the team are wonderful and brilliant, and it's just uh, an awesome opportunity for me. Awesome. And and I think um, it might be a little bit fun to to talk about kind of how you came to to running engineering organizations and and a little bit about your sort of career story in general i think um you know in the in the early 2000s you started out in a in a punk band and now you're a vp of engineering so that's that's quite a track yeah it's it's kind of funny uh, it feels like no part of my story was deliberate at all. I kind of just ended up here through a series of random decisions, <laughs> seemingly. Um, I was in high school, I was in a band, and my band needed a website. And I had a friend who took a web design class. And so I asked them to help me. And it kind of spiraled from there. I started doing websites for my friend's bands. And um, all through college, I wrote code. I did. I don't have a formal uh, background or, or education in software engineering. Back in the early 2000s, there was no uh, boot camps or uh, none that I was aware of. And I thought coding was fun. I didn't think to go to school for it and you know, kind of turned it into a career. So um, I don't know, eight or nine years um, professionally writing code and kind of accidentally got into, into 
the management track. I remember I was talking to a, a, a manager uh, colleague of mine at, at a company uh, early on in my career, and we partnered together uh, pretty often. And he asked, you know, when, when was I going to take the jump? When was I going to become a manager? And I remember you know, thinking, that's not for me. The, the problems that I want to solve and the way that I want to solve them uh, are all with code. Um, but yeah, that's, that's changed uh, over time, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like, it's, it's funny to, to hear you say that it, it you know, feels kind of chaotic and a little bit random where you, you end up in your career. I feel like when we listen to you know, career advice podcasts and blogs, it's all so structured where like, you know, you think about your career track and you think about career ladders and it's all laid out in front of you. And and that's important. And I think, you know, for some people that's, that's definitely a reality, but there's also just a level of, of kind of depending on where you are and depending what opportunities, you know, happen to show up at the company that, that you're part of as it grows or, or changes over time, that has so much influence on like where your career goes. Yeah, I think that's true. And the advice I, I, I give to folks that ask about, you know, going from IC to management is you know, think about think about what you want to do long term. The earlier you get into management, you know, the longer you're going to spend moving away from from coding and, and writing code on a day-to-day basis. So I think it's important to to think about managing your career long term in that regard. I mean, for me, I just didn't really start thinking about career management um, until until I got into management, actually. And it did feel a bit random uh, until I started, I guess, putting a plan together. Yeah. Is that is that something you feel like, you know, anyone who wants to get into management has to do? Or, or is it the kind of thing where, you know, you can try management, see if it's for you. Um, you know, we, I definitely think there's been a lot of talk about there being a sort of porous boundary between management roles and, and technical roles um, in the industry. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think a lot about this. So, you know, a corporate culture, I think, has led folks to seeing management as a promotion where you get paid more as a manager and you have influence by way of authority and things like that. I, I think that's all bad. Um, I, I don't think that those are, are good incentives for people to go into management. Um, I think good reasons to go into management are that you care about the people that you're working with and you want to think about their career trajectory and you know kind of help them move to the next step, move to the next level in whatever career trajectory that is. Maybe as a manager, you also care about the operational stuff. Um, so you value planning and you know, kind of turning that plan into uh, something that you can execute and, and deliver on. And you don't mind doing, you know, stakeholder management and partnering with stakeholders, right? So I think those are better reasons to go into management. Um, management is a deeply privileged position to be in once you get there, right? Like you do performance reviews. Um, and when you're doing performance reviews, you give someone, um, you know, feedback. Sometimes that feedback is positive and that's exciting, but sometimes it's constructive and, and critical, and that can be hard. Um, you make recommendations on raises and bonuses, right? This privilege does wield influence, and I think managers have to act very conscientiously um, and be incredibly well-intentioned. Um, so, you know, management is a shift in career, uh, uh, in my opinion, right? Like, code is no longer the primary tool for solving the problems that you're solving. 
the problems that you solve as a manager require a different toolkit. Um, I, you know, I, I break management into like three different categories, right? It's people, projects, and, and technology systems. So as a manager, I think you have to be uncompromisingly people first at, at all times. Um, when it comes to the projects, the, you know, the buck stops with you. You're accountable for, for the work of your team. And you're probably thinking less about line level code and more about technology systems. Everything from maybe the services your team owns to you know, how does the software get built and released and uh, into production? And then how do you run it, right? Your team is probably on call for that software. So you're thinking much more, um, I think, about systems topologies than you are about line level code in a lot of ways. So yeah, something, yeah. something I've always said to, to people is that like if you think that getting into management is going to give you more of a feeling of control, you are just like sorely mistaken. Uh, going going into a management role means giving up so much of, of the control that you feel as an engineer because ultimately, like exactly what you said, Dave, that you are accountable for the work that other people are doing and, and your job is to empower them to do that work and be successful and deliver, you know, a really high quality software product. But the things that you can control to make that happen are are limited. Like you can't do the work of six people on your team to to make the software good. Like you have to lead through people and and you have to sort of recognize that you cannot manage every piece of it, that you need to sort of manage the team at, at a high level. And, and trust them to, to do the work, which I think is is definitely hard for people who see management as like an opportunity, not just to wield influence, but to sort of have a really, you know, strong uh, influence on the direction of, of the work that's getting done on the team. Yeah. And, you know, I think like what I said is a like corporate culture is, you know, led folks to thinking, seeing management as a promotion, right? And I think a tactical way to talk about this is how can companies make that not the case, make management not necessarily be a promotion, right? Be a lateral move for, for an engineer. So, you know, something, something that I learned while at better, especially as we were growing the organization so quickly is what does a really good career ladder look like for, for folks? Um, and we, we created a, a leveling system where individual contributor software engineers can be promoted all the way up to reporting into the CTO while still being an individual contributor position without having to kind of branch off and go through that management track. So you have engineering managers and staff engineers kind of at the same level as peers with one another. They get paid the same. They have the same amount of influence and uh, over the, the surface area that they're, they're working on. And I think that's incredibly, incredibly important because not everybody that wants to, not, not everybody that's career ambitious you know, wants to go into management. They want to to you know keep coding. They they want to solve the hardest business problems that we have with the with code as their as their primary tool. And like that's a that's a good interview question for somebody who's like a candidate talking to companies to ask them about. I think like if you're if you're talking to uh if you're if you're going through the interview process and you have an offer on the table, ask about the management culture. Um, if you don't want to go into management, make sure that the company is aligning the incentives to make, like stay in that IC career path um, for as long as as folks want to be. Yeah, and and this is definitely not a new concept. Like if you think all the way back to like 
Mythical Man Month in the 70s. Like Fred Brooks was writing about about this exact thing of making sure that sort of managers and software architects, you know, were treated as equals by their organizations. But it also it still feels like something that that we get wrong a lot. That it's like more the exception than the rule when an organization really does a good job of aligning the career track so that people can stay in an IC role and 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 be successful in the long term and have a lot of career growth opportunities without management if that's not for them. Why do you think that that is? Like, why do you think that's so hard to get right? Oh, man, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think it's it's because a lot of this stuff is is, you know, really soft. There is no definitive playbook for for how to do this. Um, you know, over over the last 20 years, I mean, so many new processes and frameworks have come out for how to think about you know managing and leading and structuring organizations. Um, you know that Spotify had a, a had a really popular one at, at some point in the I don't know late aughts or early two thousand tens or whenever it was right where they talked about guilds and this they had this whole matrix management thing right. Um, so I don't know. I, I, at the end of the day, I think that people get it wrong because some there's there's no definitive playbook and some sometimes people just want to make it up as they go. Um, but I think, I think more, I'm seeing more companies think this way, uh, in terms of creating an individual, uh, contributor, software engineer career ladder that is kind of running in parallel to the, the management career track, which I think is just such a good, good thing. Yeah. And, and I think, um, a couple of weeks ago, we talked to Derek Stoley, who's a, a principal engineer at, at GitHub. And we were talking to him about that sort of very senior level in the IC track and um, about Will Larson's staff engineer book that he published last year. And, and one of the things that seems true to me from, from those conversations and reading that book is that engineering management roles tend to be fairly similar at different organizations, like managing software engineers, managing a roadmap. There's a lot of consistency in what that means, especially on the product side you know, between organizations doing different things. But, you know, these very senior IC roles, staff engineers, principal engineers tend to be like very, very specific to the organization they're a part of. Maybe they're devoted to solving like an incredibly hard technical problem at at the crux of that business. Maybe they're sort of scaling the company's systems in a way that's that's different than anyone else in the industry. Um, And so I think it's, it's almost like, there's just so much more variability in what that role can look like that as a company, you can't like, like you said, you can't like graft a career ladder from another organization into yours. You have to figure out like, what do really senior engineers in your organization do to create leverage? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, when when I joined Particle, one of the first things I started working on was a career ladder for, for the organization. And I think the worst thing that I could have done is you know, start from scratch and write it myself in kind of a vacuum. So I partnered with, uh, you know, a couple of the engineers on the team and we worked closely together um, on on defining what that looks like. And I think there's a couple of reasons for, for doing it that way. One, you're right. There is a lot of variability in what folks and how roles are, are defined in an organization, what the, what the culture of a particular organization is, and what the right framework for um, leadership, project management, um, you know, release software, you know, releasing. Um, I think it, it, there's a lot of variability there. So 
the career ladder was shaped so much by the input from the the folks on the team. But also it's important it's important to do it that way too because it's it's the foundation for for I think scaling and, and growing the company, right? Your your interview process is probably evaluating for your most the competencies you think are most important. And those competencies that you think are important are probably articulated in your career ladder. Your review process is also probably kind of um, you know, articulated in the context of, of the career ladder. People are evaluated based on you know, where they're at in, in the career ladder. Um, so you want to be able to capture the company's culture, the, the, the values and the ideals of the people that have been at the company um, in that career ladder as something foundational to scaling an organization or growing an organization or evolving an organization. I think that's that's one of the key ways to kind of, you know, um, take the vision that the organization has and, and codify it long term. Yeah. And I think one of probably those like really important alignment points where especially as a company is is growing, you know, as a as a startup, you're you're constantly scaling and thinking about scaling and, and thinking about how you're going to solve the problems caused by scaling. Um, you know, codifying those values and, and reflecting those values of the team as it exists now in those types of documents and, and career ladders feels like an important way that you sort of build trust that that everyone is aligned with what we value as we're growing. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so that that seems like a, a perfect segue to talk about you know some of the. The work you've done and, and experience you have scaling organizations and, and some of what you've learned from that. Um, I think at, at the top, I said you started on a team of five engineers at, at Better, and by the time you left, it was 120. Oh my God, that's like 25 times as many engineers in like two and a half years. Um, can you sort of maybe start from a, a really sort of basic place? Why does anyone ever even need to scale an engineering team that fast? Oh man, that's a juicy question. Um, I mean, what does an organization what does an organization get out of having a much larger software engineering team? Uh, I mean, better went from I think when I joined, it was about twenty five to thirty software engineers. Um, I maintain that I was an engineer. I, I maintain that I was hired before they hit thirty, uh, but I don't have a perfect recall for it. And I think by the time I left, the engineering team was like, I don't know, 375, 400, something like that. So the engineering team grew so much. So I think like what, what ends up happening when you have a much larger team is that you can just parallelize more work. You can just get more things done at one time for an organization. And you can also specialize. Um, when you have 25 engineers, you probably don't have a five to 10 person infrastructure team or a five to 10 person data team, right? When you have 350 engineers, you have a 30 to 50 person um, data or infrastructure team in, in some instances. So you can just further specialize so much. Um, opportunity cost early on in a startup is potentially existential. Um, so I think what you're doing is you're building a feature to the MVP um, and then you're moving on to the next thing. Right, you're you're focusing on on breadth of the of the surface area for the overarching product MVP. Um, once you've reached product market fit, opportunity cost is no longer uh, existential. I don't think so. You can focus on 
you know, your core competencies and continuing to evolve them, but you can take bigger bets, right? If you think about your staffing uh, across the org as kind of a portfolio in the same way that you think about your, you know, financial investment strategy as a portfolio, right? Like you're probably investing in some more risky things that might not pan out, um, but you're also probably spending a significant amount of time on your core competencies. So I think just having a larger engineering team uh, allows you to, to do more, specialize further and reduce opportunity costs while being able to, to take on bigger bets at the same time. Yeah. Maybe to, to play devil's advocate here though, I think there's also, you know, if you think about an efficiency curve of how engineering teams grow. It's it's easy to imagine, you know, you add a hundred engineers to your company and there's just so much inefficiency that's created and people are tripping over each other and your processes can't keep up that, you know, the engineers you're hiring aren't actually adding any more value, even if they're sort of all writing code. How do you think about like, you know, creating processes or or teams within the organization to make sure that you're actually getting the value out of the next hundred engineers you hire when you're hiring that that quickly. Yeah. I mean, and I'm gonna be honest, I'm not the, I'm not an advocate of, you know, going from twenty-five to four hundred in uh in, in a two year period or something like that. I think it's it's super hard and you you end up, you know, there's there is a lot of things you trip over. Um I I I, I don't know, I read a tweet or a blog post recently where someone was like, I'm less impressed about, you know, the the size of the team. Um uh, and and more impressed by what you can do with a with a smaller team. And um, you know, when you and I work together, I think like that's what we focused on so much, right? Like engineering team size was a constraint, and we had way more to do than the people we had to to do the work. But I think that constraint allowed us to be so so effective as a small team, and that is a, a to me a, a such an interesting problem to be solving. Um, so I don't know. I mean, you're right. Like. The, the first the first six months um, of, of growing really quickly but what I noticed is there's there's a couple of things that's happening to every different you know person within the org so from a software engineering perspective so the folks that were there when the org was small right they had a huge amount of autonomy um, I think of like individ at that point individuals were the unit of concurrency for value delivery right so when you want a new feature you go ask one person. They do the stakeholder management, they do the requirements gathering, and then they go and they build it, right? And then they move on to the next thing. When you're a lot larger, teams become that unit of concurrency. So you give the problem to the team and the team then goes and, and attacks it and, and solves it. But that's a big cultural shift for, for the human beings on the team, right? So, so I think if you have been at the company from five to 30, you see it operating one way and it just changes so much. And... I think it, it could be it could be hard. There's a lot more process. It could feel like you might be losing some autonomy um, in a lot of ways, and I think that's really hard. And I think what good leaders will do is just have a tremendous amount of empathy for those folks and figure out how to make it work for them. And I think that's that's so important. The new folks that are joining the organization, I think, can see it as a bit chaotic, right? There are just as many new people in the first three to six months as there are people that have been at the company for a long time. So you're putting a tremendous amount of stress stress and, and pressure on the people who've been at the company, who have institutional knowledge, who are training up the new folks. Um, so I think as a new person in an org like this, it could be, it could be pretty hard and, and challenging uh, as well to kind of like know where you fit in and, and how you fit in 
until things settle down a bit. A bit. Your, your whole team might be a brand new team in, in some instances. So again, this is another area where I think leaders just have to have a people first mentality to have to have empathy for, for the human beings that are in the organization. The third category of people I will mention is just the stakeholders, the, the business side, right? They're used to working with engineers one-on-one. They're used to looking at the feature that was built and, and playing with that feature. Um, but now stakeholders have to move to a mode where they're, they're looking at metrics. Um, their contract is no longer the, the look and feel of the feature. It's the metric, right? Did this feature or did this class of features um, move the needle for the business? Did it create you know, operational efficiency where we expected it to? Did it increase conversion at the aspect of the funnel uh, or the area of the funnel that, that we care about? And I think as a, as a stakeholder that, that comes with coaching, right? Engineering leaders, engineers should be coaching uh, stakeholders because I think there there could be a lot of friction there. Um, yeah. What do you yeah. What do you mean by coaching stakeholders? Like, what does that look like? I think a lot of it is education. Um, why Why is this changing? Why can't I look at the features? Um, well, you can't look at the features because there's so many new ones that are popping up with such a larger organization at this point, right? And I think that that can be that could be a challenge for for folks that are going through the process of seeing the engineering team uh, grow so much and, and operating in a different um, model. So I think just like, having empathy for for those folks, just talking talking them through why this is changing. I I spent a huge amount of my time um, at Better, you know, talking to our our head of operations, our um, our head of sales, you know, folks like that, to talk to them about why these changes are happening and, and what they can expect. And I think it went a long way in terms of you know, re- relationship and trust building. Um, and it gave the engineering team the space that they need to, to you know, get done what they had to do in the way that they need to do it. And I think that was really important. Yeah, that, that resonates with me a lot. I think LogRocket, you know, our engineering team is kind of right in that growth phase of transitioning from the paradigm where like people get things done to teams get things done. And, you know, we're, we're having to basically rethink all of our processes and all of our ways of, of communicating with different parts of the org, just because, you know, we're, we're so used to working one way and, and we're trying to sort of shift, you know, pretty quickly everything at the same time about how our, our engineering team works. And it's, it's really fun and exciting. And it's also, you know, definitely a challenge to sort of see all of those pieces moving at the same time. One of the, the other things I think goes hand in hand with growing an organization is hiring. Like, I think anyone who's, who's sort of responsible for hiring engineers or, or anyone who's job hunting right now is, knows that the market is, is very competitive. Like everyone wants to hire engineers. There's a lot of VC money out there. Um, how do you think about you know hiring for scale, but but still you know keeping your standards high and, and keeping the engineers that you're bringing into the organization strong? I think you know just some philosoph- philosophical things <laughs> really quickly. I mean, you're you're. I think of the inter- the interview process as the first evaluation that a person on the engineering team will have, and the interview process. Is one the review process is kind of the next one, right? And both of these things should be rooted in the same foundation, as I mentioned earlier. So the career ladder and the competencies that that you define there, right? So you should be evaluating people for what you will also be reviewing them for at some point. 
Um, so build out an engineering uh, interview process that tests for those competencies and does so uh, consistently across the board. The questions are exactly the same. Engineers are trained on those questions. They're exactly the same from, from candidate to candidate. Nothing ever kind of changes, unless obviously it's a different role. But if it's, if it's the same role, nothing changes. Right? So I think that's really, really uh, important. Have our engineering career ladder, have uh, a rubric, and then have questions that evaluate for that rubric. Those questions should be technical, um, uh, of course, and they should, you know, I'm a big believer in behavioral interview questions as well, where you ask people to talk about their, their story um, over uh, questions where it's kind of situational. But um, kind of, I feel like I'm diverging a little bit here. So I guess, like, so that's the... The foundation, uh, I think. So you, when you're when you're hiring at scale versus when you're you're kind of hiring, you know, much more slowly. I think you have a choice between um, kind of specificity and um, uh, like a general skill set, specific skill set and general skill set. Um, so if 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 what you want is the person that you if you hire to kind of like ramp up really quickly, then hire for that specific skill set that you want. Hire engineers that know GCP. Golang and have worked in healthcare before, right? Um, but if you're hiring a lot of folks at once, you probably can't do that. The pool just is too small. Um, you you want to increase the pool size. So rather than hire for specific skill set, hire for general skill set. Your lead time, the the time it takes you to go from interviewing candidates to hiring candidates, will be shorter in 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 this uh, case. However, you know it might take longer for those folks to ramp internally. So you have to have good, good training, uh, good training programs. So and and I think just be uncompromising in in your interview process, right? You know, keeping the bar high is 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 about you know making sure that you know, the rubrics and the interview questions are, are testing for those things and, and doing a good job uh, testing for those things, and then don't change them, right? Don't don't don't. You know, let the pressure of hitting growth targets compromise, you know, the integrity of the interview process. That's that's super important, um, I, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I like I really like your framing of viewing both like the interview process and the questions you ask and how you evaluate candidates and the career ladder as kind of both things that directly descend from your organization's values and, and the engineering team's values. And, and they're kind of just different ways of expressing that same thing. Yeah, I mean like in a most ideal situation, you have a you have your company values, you know what they are. You build your career ladder on top of those company values and imbue those values into your career ladder and then you build your evaluation processes on top of that. So your interview process and your performance review process. I think that's, you know, that's something we did pretty well um at at better and and I think that worked really well. Another thing I think that you hear a lot as as teams are scaling and changing is an anxiety from people about the culture changing or, or losing the culture that you know makes our team really good. It makes our team great to be a part of. How do you think about the ways that culture changes when you grow a team quickly? And and does like does that even matter or is that just kind of you know the wrong framing? This was the number one question I got from candidates. Uh, that I interviewed at Better. I interviewed over 600 people while I was there. Um, and this question was the one that came up so, so often. And I think um, it's a complicated answer. It's, it's really hard to answer. I think like the, the probably 
shortest way to answer this when somebody asks is how do you maintain the culture that that you've built is is you just don't right like so many things change over the course of of growing an organization really quickly um the processes have to change what what you what you do at 25 people is very different for what you do at at 200 people from planning to delivery right um you hire new leaders into the organization and those leaders come from different places and they have different ways of doing things right so there's just some things that are are, are going to change no matter what um, but I think that there are things that you don't want to change. There are really, really important values that that you have that that you don't want to compromise on. Um, and I think, you know, some of those things, um, some of those things uh, will will change for for the better as you as you bring on uh, uh, new new folks with different backgrounds and different different experiences. And some of those things just require a different mechanism for holding the organization accountable for you know maintaining those cultural values. So. Here's, I don't know, this is like a contrived example, but um, you're, you value um, you value short iteration cycles as an engineering and product team. So you want to, uh, if, if you do that, so what, what does that mean? It means you're releasing to production early and often. Your PRs are probably smaller. There are fewer lines of code. You can release a feature in the morning, see how it performs by measuring it, and then release an iteration of that feature by the afternoon right to, to to change something so um when you're really small if you're a five person or ten person engineering team right like you can elbow the engineer next to you and say hey that pr didn't have um th that pr didn't have any tests so add tests fix it but when you're a 200 person organization convention is no longer the way that you can enforce these kinds of things so if you if you value a culture of iterative um uh iterative development cycles and tight feedback loops, well, then you probably need a programmatic way of enforcing that. You can't rely on convention. So you ensure that teams maintain a high degree of test coverage, for example, by measuring that and then by holding managers accountable or tech leads accountable for um, ensuring that their team is you know, keeping that that uh, test coverage uh, up, up to speed. So I don't know, long kind of long roundabout way of saying that is that there are things that you value that you don't want to change. And you've just got to change the enforcement mechanism. You could change the enforcement mechanism through codifying them um, and programmatically enforcing them. And you can put them in the career ladder and you know hold people accountable in reviews for for you know for doing that. And then there are things that are just going to change, and and that's okay. And I think you should embrace that change, especially if it's really good change as as you scale and grow. One last thing I thought it would be really interesting to talk about. I mean, our perspective is is obviously as managers, but. I think a lot of people, you know, who might be interviewing to to join a startup that's growing quickly or, or join a scaling company would kind of want to know, like, what should I look for in a company? If I want to, like, have this experience and, and join a fast scaling engineering team, like, what should I look for? What should be red flags? Like, what should I ask in an interview? So first and foremost, I, I think being at a at a hyperscaling company, a company that's grown fast, was a massive and wonderful education for me. Uh, I learned so much going through that process. So I think it's a, an incredible opportunity if, if folks have, have the opportunity to do that. There's a ton of <laughs> VC money right now, and a lot of companies are using it to hire uh, engineers and grow them. So there's probably a bunch of people uh, listening to this that have this opportunity. Um, you know, I I think make sure you go into it with with the expectations that things will be a bit chaotic and ask questions 
that help you understand where what that chaos looks like are are the kind of like principal are, are like the principled constraints that an organization has the right ones so so what what do they value do they value tight feedback loops do they value uh, and, and tight iteration cycles and, and close feedback loops do they value um, having IC career ladder that goes up to the CTO um, uh, on top of uh, a management career ladder I think like the same things you'd ask at, at any company. I think that those those things are all really foundational and really important. But I mean, ask the interviewer what's what is the messiest part of growing really quickly. Um, I, I think, you know, I was very very candid and, and very honest with with candidates that that asked me those questions. And I mean, you know, you might have three managers in you know in a year or in eighteen months or something. Um, uh, so you know, ask ask about how the the company thinks about the the org design and the org design how it's changing and shifting and how that might impact you. Will will you have multiple managers? Is it okay? Do you feel okay about that? Um, will will the team that you get assigned to change very quickly? Um, you know, I think all those things are totally feasible. They can and probably will happen. So um, you know, be prepared. Yeah. And, and I guess the flip side of that question, you're one of the first five, 10 engineers, like you've been in the basement, you've done the work to get that initial product market fit. And now the team is about to start scaling quickly. What should you know to continue to be successful when the organization is twice that size or, or four times that size? If you're going to join an engineering organization as the first five people or as the first six people uh, on the team, I think you care a huge amount of making a big impact, um, right? And you care about autonomy, shaping the feature, shaping the problem, the the solution to the problem kind of independently. Um, I think those are things you, you probably care a lot about. So how are you going to, how is your manager going to kind of help you maintain that autonomy while also, you know, knowing that the, the culture is going to shift. You're probably going to be, you know, the team is going to take on the problem versus the individuals. What does that mean for you? How is your manager and your organization looking out for you to make sure that you still have autonomy, that you can still make a big impact in the way that you probably did as a, as a, you know, five or, or six person team. I think that's, that's really, really important. Your, your manager has to, you know, I don't know what the right way of framing this is, but I think like, Managers should take an individualist approach to the people that they manage um, versus treating everybody exactly the same, right? Um, that's what I think equity is about, right? So so thinking about the, the specific circumstances a person is in and kind of working with them to create the, the same kind of impact that, that they would want to have. So I would say, you know, uh, that's probably the most important thing. Uh, if, if you're in that situation and the organization is about to scale around you, um, how does your manager going to help you maintain that autonomy and, and that, that impact as, as the org grows and changes? Yeah, that's great. Dave, I think that's probably a good place to, to wrap up. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us on Pod Rocket today. Um, is there anything that you want to plug for our listeners or, or point them at? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you're interested in particle health and want to come uh, work with me, uh, reach out. I'd love to, to, to talk to you. Um, otherwise, that's it. Thank you so much for having me. I, I loved this conversation. I feel like there's 10 more topics we can talk about. Uh, 
But um, but yeah, appreciate you guys having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pod Rocket. Find us at Pod Rocket Pod on Twitter, or you could always email me, even though that's not a popular option. It's Brian at Log Rocket.